Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and it cannot be denied. Summer is here. And with summer comes all those fun, warm-weather trappings like picnics, barbecues, trips to the beach or the pool. But summer can also bring some special health challenges that can kill more than a little warm-weather joy. Everything from sunburn to swimmer's ear. So this week, we've decided to reach into the Metro Connection archives and pull out some of our favorite health and wellness stories from the past few months. Stories about personal health and wellness, not to mention the health and wellness of ecosystems, even infrastructure. We'll meet a man who came down with a brain disorder that affects something like two in a million males. We'll go skating with an ice hockey team comprised of children with disabilities, and we'll do a checkup of our region's roads and bridges to see how well they're doing these days. But first, we turn to a story we first aired in May, just before a brand new book hit the market, a book penned by Virginia father Matt McNeil to help spread the word about a rare illness that's affecting his children. And when it comes to children, it can be a huge thing for parents to witness and record their children's firsts, right? Their first smile, their first word, their first steps. But for the past few years, Matt and his wife Shannon have been witnessing and recording something else. Mommy. Yes! I got a mommy on tape. Good girl, baby. Good girl. We got one for the camera. We can always remember November 20th, 2009. I got a mommy. And Shannon believes this videotaped moment we're hearing was the last mommy she got. Good girl, baby girl. Shannon's daughter, Waverly, wasn't actually a baby when this video was shot. The brown-haired, long-lashed little girl was six. At four, she'd been diagnosed with a genetic degenerative disorder present in one of every 24,000 births, San Filippo syndrome, or MPS-3. So MPS-3. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that stand for? Mucopolysaccharidosis. This is Waverly's dad, Matt. I met him and his family at McLean's Clemmy Jauntry Park, a playground equipped for kids with special needs. Kids with MPS3 will make sugars that everybody makes, but they just can't get rid of them because they lack an enzyme that's necessary for breaking them down. So it's essentially like a city if the sanitation workers went on strike. There's nothing to take the garbage out, so it just piles up. And it starts to damage cells and the brain. In stages. In stage one, kids seem happy and healthy. But then you'll start to see little changes where they become a little more hyperactive. They have restless sleeping. Stage two brings even more restless sleeping. Waverly would go nights on end where she'd be up five hours a night. More hyperactivity. She just couldn't sit still. And less memory. She started to forget things like how to use silverware and feeding herself. And she started to have a lot of accidents. So... She was semi-toilet trained for a while, and we put her back in diapers. In fact, Matt says his 8-year-old daughter has regressed to the cognitive equivalent of a 1-year-old, maybe younger. And as she moves to stage 3... It's just slowing down. She's completely stopped talking, singing. She can still walk with assistance. She's in a wheelchair, though, pretty much for her own safety. Eventually, Waverly won't be able to walk chew or swallow. And typically what happens is kids with MPS3 will usually contract pneumonia from aspirations, so some fluids will get in their lungs, they'll get an infection. And until a cure is found, there is no stage four. 
Now, at this point, I should probably mention Waverly isn't the only McNeil with MPS3. Both Matt and Shannon carry a recessive gene for the disorder, so their chances of conceiving kids with MPS3 was one in four. And Waverly's five-year-old brother, Oliver, was diagnosed when he was 16 months. That's about the best of his his voice that we ever get to hear, is his little sort of Chewbacca yops. Oliver may not talk, but he sure can walk, careening his stout little frame. Hey, Oliver, what you doing? All over the playground. Such a cute little troublemaker. Still, at this point, his cognitive ability is like that of a -a one-and-a-half-year-old. The kid asked me, so, so is he a big kid or a baby? And I said... Well, sort of both. But Oliver's heading more toward the latter, now that he's in the second stage of MPS3. Matt says the little guy's development has pretty much peaked. And now we're starting to see that he's coming down. He's sort of gained all the new skills he'll ever gain. What's interesting, though, is because Oliver was diagnosed at an earlier age than Waverly was, in a way, Matt and Shannon were a bit more prepared. We knew that everything he was picking up, he was going to lose at some point. With Waverly, we had no idea. So our expectations were, here's a little girl that we're raising to be an adult. And it was much harder at every first that we had with her, uh, every first regression that we realized, oh, she's not doing this anymore, that anymore. And with Oliver, we always knew it was coming and we knew about when it was coming. But that preparation didn't necessarily make it easier to cope. In fact, Matt says after his children's diagnosis in 2008, he fell apart. It tried to, you know, be stiff upper lip about it. And I think it was just more me sort of shutting down a little bit, retreating. So he began to write. He'd been dabbling in writing since college, though he never finished anything. Yet each night after putting the kids to bed, he'd head to his computer and write and write. And the more I came back to writing, I was slowly sort of lifting out of the funk that I had slid into. Until eventually, he had a young adult novel on his hands. The Strange Tale of Ben Beasley is about a fly who sets out to save his fellow flies, Waverly and Oliver, from the debilitating venom of some malicious poison spiders, as in M.P.S.? So then would you call this book somewhat of a memoir, autobiography, allegory? Yeah, I mean, for the kids, it's complete sort of action-adventure book about insects, but it was very much our memoir of my story with our kids. Only in this story, and uh, major spoiler alert here, Waverly and Oliver get cured. And when I allowed myself to write a happy ending, I think that's when I started to realize that the book could be useful to us to try to get to it in real life. That's why all proceeds from the book's sales will go to the National MPS Society to help fund research for what Matt calls an orphan disease. There aren't that many people afflicted by it, so it doesn't get a lot of attention from researchers. So the more families who are affected can do to raise money to find research that will lead to someday a cure, but at least a treatment that gives them a fighting chance. I mean, that's what we had to do. But for now, Matt and Shannon take things day by day and relish the small joys they experience with their kids, like the joy of Oliver's grin as Shannon pushes him in a red plastic swing. Ready, steady, go! Good boy! Or the joy of Waverly's giggles. Hey, Wavy! Wavy! Waverly! <laughs> That's my girl. 
<laughs> Shannon and Matt say Waverly's actually been crying more lately. They're not sure why, but one thing is certain to calm her down. She has always liked to sing, and she reacts well to singing. Like she'll fuss like that. But then... <laughs> deep in the hundred acre wood Where Christopher Robin plays You'll find the enchanted neighborhood Christopher's child Keep going And even though today's Waverly is a very different girl from the one you hear in this 2007 video, her proud parents will be the first to tell you she's still good. And difficult as it can be sometimes, just having her and Oliver around for however long they'll stay is nothing short of great. The Strange Tale of Ben Beasley is now available online. You can learn more about the book and MPS3 and see and hear more of Waverly and Oliver on our website, metroconnection.org. This next story is also about kids. Kids who are playing one of the more aggressive sports out there, hockey. Back in December, Emily Friedman headed to Bolston, Virginia, to visit the Washington Capitals practice rink, Kettler Capitals Iceplex. And she brought us the story behind one of our city's most vibrant hockey teams, the D.C. Sled Sharks. The D.C. Sled Sharks are down 4-0 at the end of the second period. A few of the top players are out with injuries, and they're down to six, just enough to play. No subs. It's not looking good, but the team isn't too discouraged. Actually, they look pretty happy. They love throwing big hits. Everything about hockey these guys are into. That's Coach Brian Dutton. Yeah, we've had uh, kids with spina bifida, we've had amputees, we've had conjoined twins at the head out here, so we had two players that were, that were connected at the head on two different sleds. Sled hockey, or sledge hockey, as the Europeans call it, was invented by three Swedish wheelchair athletes back in 1961. The athletes decided there had to be a way to translate NHL-style hockey into a game for people who can't use their legs. The three Swedes decided that instead of skating, players would sit on a tiny sled with two blades under it, blades just like the kind on hockey skates. And on top of that sled contraption is a bucket that they sit in. Which is not actually a bucket, but more like a backrest to hold the player's torso up. Their legs are strapped into the sled, and they hold two short hockey sticks, maybe a third the size of a traditional hockey stick. On one end is the blade to hit the puck, and on the other end, there's metal teeth, which players dig into the ice to move around the rink. Shoot! There it is! Within a year of the game's invention, there were five teams in Stockholm, and by 1994, 
Sled hockey made it to the Paralympic Games. What's nice for the children, too, from a physical point is that it's the opposite movement than pushing their wheelchair. So if you have a wheelchair user and they're always pushing forward, when they're skating, they're pulling back. Joan Joyce is the manager of the Sled Sharks. She's also the recreation therapy coordinator at National Rehabilitation Hospital, the organizer and main sponsor for the team. NRH has a Paralympic sports club, which also organizes teams for wheelchair basketball, quad rugby, wheelchair tennis, and hand cycling. One of my favorite moments was we have one of the kids who's on the team is in high school, and we had just come out, and he was going down the hall in his wheelchair, and this able-bodied kid stopped him and said, Vitaly, what are you doing here? And he goes, I'm on a hockey team. You're on a hockey team? You know, and it, the kid was shocked, and the kid's on a hockey team, so it gave them a connection that they hadn't had before. In the final period of the game, Connor Delaney is playing defense. He's the youngest one on the team, and by far, the smallest. I'm Seal Delaney, mom of Connor Delaney, number 25, on the D.C. Sled Sharks. Connor um, was born early, 12 weeks early. Um, he has cerebral palsy. Other than that, he's 100% typical boy. In the past, Connor had played sports for kids with disabilities, but no one kept score. And that, he told his mother was not what he wanted. Like any typical male, <laughs> they're competitive. He wants to be out there playing and wants to go fast and wants to score, and, you know, now he can. Connor, she says, has been playing now for almost two years and loving it. It changed his life, which changed our life when he joined the team. After the game, Connor's father, Pat Delaney, helps pull the players and their sleds off the ice. The Sharks lost... Five to one. Hello, Mr. Peanut. How are you? Well, I, I'm sweating so badly. We had no subs. I know. During a post-game interview, I asked Connor about the game. At nine years old, he handles it like a pro, spinning a loss into the makings of a great underdog story. We are kind of a new team, so we are losing a little bit, but we'll, we'll get better and we'll keep on going and We'll keep trying and we're going to get better. As far as Connor is concerned, he plans to keep playing the sport and, of course, winning for a long time to come. I'm Emily Friedman. Time for a break, but when we get back, a mom-and-pop pharmacy celebrates a century of business. And do you know a lot of people's names when they walk through the door? Um, Yeah. That's rare. Yeah, indeed. That and more coming your way on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson, in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear. Welcome back to Metro Connection. This week we're revisiting some of our favorite health and wellness stories from the show. And this next one, I gotta say, was so much fun for a history buff like me to report because it focuses on a rather historical place in which you'll find a rather rare piece of history. Here's a receipt for a delivery to the White House 
for Miss Jacqueline Kennedy. Oh, wow. For $8.17. This is pharmacist Barry Deutschman. This receipt was auctioned off at Sotheby's, but one of the neighbor's sons worked at Sotheby's and made a copy of the receipt so that we could have it. Deutschman has owned Morgan's Pharmacy in Georgetown since 1992. Can we see what she purchased? I'm trying to read the handwriting. Aspirin. I can't make that out. Almay face something. Spot strips, probably Band-Aid of some type, and uh, Revlon polish. For 75 cents. Yeah, the total delivery with federal tax and state tax came to $8.17. We're in the back Um, office of Morgan's, an institution whose history extends well beyond the Kennedy administration. In fact, it was 100 years ago that Malcolm and Harold Morgan first opened their doors on the corner of 30th and P. This is what the store looked like in 1912. You can see the same fixtures going down both sides of the store. Soda fountain. Oh, the soda fountain. You know, a funny story about the soda fountain. In 1912, the drink that they served them the most was either Coca-Cola or something called Two Cents Plain, which was just seltzer water. Well, today the biggest seller in the cooler, for health reasons, is no longer Coke. It's seltzer. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's interesting. We, we going back to the future, so to speak. Everything old is new again. Yeah. Well, not everything. The drugstore's products have expanded and diversified. The original black exterior is now a minty green. And certain customer habits, I guess you could say... There's a photo on the wall from the 50s. ...have gone up in smoke. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are smoking inside the pharmacy. That's hilarious. Everybody smoked. But yes, much has stayed the same over the past century. Morgan's still does deliveries, for instance, a couple hundred a week. It still offers personal charge accounts. And, says staff member Dave Ibenson, it's still a place where everybody knows your name. Probably like 90% of our clientele is a return customer. So that in itself is something you don't get elsewhere. And Ibenson knows all about getting stuff. He's the store's buyer and merchandiser. Right now he's going through a set of old wooden drawers where customers can find all sorts of goods. The drawers, by the way, probably date back to the 1910s or 20s. You name it. You can find it. And if you can't? We'll get it for you. Really? We aim to please. It's our customers, you know, we, we take care of them. Maurice Brown has been the manager at Morgan's since the late 1980s. It's like a big family. And, you know, that's pretty special, actually. Um, as you know, these places aren't around anymore. You know, all the big box stores come in and gotten rid of all the little guys. Well, not all of them. The National Community Pharmacists Association says upwards of 20,000 independent pharmacies still exist in the U.S. In the 1980s, it was more like 40. And that's approximately the number of chain drugstores today, according to the National Association of Chain Drugstores. That's up from 30,000 in the late 90s. But Barry Deutschman insists when it comes to those big chains. Competition in itself was never really a problem. What has been a problem, he says, is the health care system. Since he graduated from the now defunct George Washington University School of Pharmacy in 1958, he's watched reimbursements from private and government third-party payers shrink. You know, the tighter squeeze in terms terms of making a profit on certain medications. And he's watched prescription prices rise. Uh, I did work here in the 70s, 
part-time. And you filled a prescription and you made a fair profit, but the average price of a prescription was maybe $25 maximum. Well, today, prescriptions are very expensive, especially brand-name drugs. Then, of course, there's been the growth of pharmacy benefit managers, or PBMs, huge companies like Caremark and Medco, which administer nearly every prescription drug insurance plan in the United States. Customers don't understand when insurance companies don't want to pay for a specific drug. And they'll say, but that's what my doctor wants me to have. And unfortunately, that's not what the insurance company wants you to have. (laughs) So you have to go through the process of a prior authorization. And that can take anywhere from 24 hours to three or four days or a total rejection. Which is why Deutschmann's goal is to help customers navigate the system. And fight the hurdles and the maze of getting through that. I mean, that's the one thing that independents still can afford to give, and that's the time and the energy and the service. And Morgan's, he says, can give something else, too. 100 years of colorful history. One of his favorite moments was when Julia Child came to town to work with some chefs at the Smithsonian. And She walks in one day, and I looked at her, and I said, well, hello, Miss Child, how are you? What a pleasant surprise to have you come into Morgan's. And she said, oh, I need some help. I said, well, what's that? She said, I need some Tums for the tummy. <laughs> So I'll never forget that, and that's a story I like to tell. Of course, when I do tell it, I I do imitate her. You didn't imitate her this time. I know. (laughs) Barry Deutschman has collected decades of stories by now, but he says he's not taking off his crisp white Morgan's Pharmacy button-down anytime soon. In terms of your future here at Morgan's, you're going to stick around. I have no plans on retiring. I love what I do. I've always considered myself a people person, so I love being around people. I love talking with people. Uh, I mean, what more could I want? Well, only he knows the answer to that question. But whatever it is, chances are he can find it at Morgan's. After all, they aim to please. To see photographs of Morgan's Pharmacy through the years, from 1912 to the present day, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Now, people, of course, aren't the only ones we hope will stay healthy and well. What about the environment? Earlier this year, environment reporter Sabri Benashore introduced us to an invasive species that's threatening the health of our environment and brought us the tale of one bride's unusual approach to keeping our ecosystem well. So I don't know if you all remember this, so let's go back 10 years, almost exactly, to when the snakehead came to Maryland. It's an exotic fish from Asia that someone released here. That can walk on land has multiplied. There could be thousands. So called Frankenfish. Then there was a documentary. Most razor sharp teeth. This predator is an enemy to all. And an unbelievably bad movie. And they are coming. Now, fast forward a decade and meet Carrie Kennedy. My name is Carrie Kennedy. And she's getting married. So we're going to have a light lunch buffet, and that lunch buffet, like most weddings, is going to have chicken and fish. Um, But the fish that we're going to have is going to be snakehead. Kennedy is a fishery scientist for Maryland's Department of Natural Resources. Snakehead's an invasive species here in Maryland, and we want it to go away. So we're trying to create a market. And their strategy is kind of working. Our biggest low so far has been 560 pounds in one day. John Rurapau is with Profish, a wholesaler in Northeast D.C. He's standing over crates of iced, giant snakehead. 
we have a couple hundred pounds that we got in yesterday, and all this fish will be gone this weekend. Now, are they a monstrous looking fish? That is a yes. They have a boa constrictor python look to them from, from the neck down. If you open up the mouth, it has a full row of teeth in the front on the lips, and then it has bigger teeth set back into the uh, mouth. They cannot walk on land, that was just a rumor, but they can breathe air by gulping, and they can survive for long periods out of water. And are they ravenous? Mm, yes. Check out what they found in these guys' bellies. Double-A batteries, um, mice, um, bird's feet. Uh, we found turtles, baby turtles. Um, anything that swims past them that's living, they'll eat. But guess what? They are delicious. We're, we're actually next door. Uh, Louie's Diner is right next to our warehouse. So earlier I brought over some snakehead fillet for him, and he put a light marinade on them. So we're going to throw them on the grill and uh, let you taste them. All right, let's try. They're great. It's so it's dense. It's it's almost not like fish. When when you bite into it, it almost feels like it falls apart because it's so tender. This fish is mostly just available in fancy restaurants right now, and it's kind of pricey. Plus, it's called snakehead and looks like Jacques Cousteau's nightmares, so it's not totally taking off yet, as delicious as it is. So it's very much still here and very much a part of the ecosystem now. The entire Potomac River system, including non-tidal and tidal, from Great Falls all the way to Chesapeake Bay. John Odenkirk is a biologist with the Virginia Department of Game and Inland Fisheries, and he's standing on a boat on the Occoquan River. Basically, he's tasering fish. So what we'll do is we'll start shocking, and the uh, generator's going to be running the whole time. He's actually surveying the fish population. We're actually putting electricity current in the water, about 1,000 volts DC, and so don't fall in. Two sets of electrodes, they look like tire-sized aluminum spiders, yeah. are dangling into the water ahead of the boat. The generator goes on. And fish fly everywhere. Glints of silver flash over the surface as fish of all types start spasming towards the cables. Actually, as electricity goes through the fish, it forces the fish sort of in a trance. It's like zombies in a trance. And then one, two, three enormous snakeheads emerge from the depths. Odenkirk scoops them up in a 10-foot-long pole net. Awesome. When you hit them like that, they're not easy, the easiest fish to work with either. They're, they're, they're kind of uncooperative. He measures the fish, tags them. It's got a unique number on it. It says remove tag, report location, and kill fish. And throws them back. The idea is to figure out how fast they grow yeah. and where they travel to. In a half hour, they catch 35 snakeheads up to three feet long. Odenkirk is also catching largemouth bass. So we're trying to track both populations. The contention is that the bass population was, was hurting. Some people are making that contention because of the snakehead's presence, but that's not what we're seeing at all. This, this year has been a phenomenal year for bass. In fact, Odenkirk says it looks like the snakeheads aren't turning out to be the monster people feared. We still, we still don't know. We don't have enough information to really make that call yet, and we probably won't for several more years. But it, it does look like some of the initial uh, hysteria was probably overstated. Not probably. It was almost surely overstated. The real question is how much further the population will expand, geographically and in terms of numbers. If, if it tops out where it is now, like it seems like it might be, based on last year's data, I think it will assimilate and, and not really cause a lot of damage. 
What could be a big deal, though, is if the fish gets into isolated streams or if it gets into an area where there's an endangered fish species. It has Virginia worried enough that the Commonwealth isn't ready to allow the sale of snakeheads for fear that that would encourage people to spread the fish themselves. But back in Maryland, Carrie Kennedy is trying a sample for her wedding. Mm. It's really good. The best thing would be if it wasn't around at all. But you know what? If you have lemons, you might as well make lemonade. I'm Sabri Benishore. For photos and videos of snakeheads, as well as some recipes for the more daring chefs out there, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Now, it's no secret that stress can play a huge role in determining whether we feel healthy and well. And stress doesn't affect humans alone. It's wearing down our infrastructure, too. And that's the topic of our weekly transportation segment from A to B. A few months back, transportation reporter Martin DeCaro hit the road to see how transportation agencies are using high-tech equipment to measure stress on our roads and bridges. As you whiz down the highway, you're focused on getting to where you need to be, hoping you don't get stuck in bumper-to-bumper, maybe hating the Sunday driver in front of you in the left lane. You're not thinking about whether this highway sign might fall over. Men in hard hats kneel down around its base using a good old-fashioned hammer to perform a preliminary inspection. Just a test to see if these nuts are loose. Don't worry, the sign is sturdy. The reason why technicians at the Virginia Department of Transportation know that is they're also using technology more advanced than a hammer or power drill. It's an ultrasonic uh, testing equipment using sound waves. What I'm holding now is uh, actually emitting a sound wave to the rod. This cantilever sign structure. Meaning that you have a vertical pole and then you have a horizontal arm that's suspended, that's attached to the pole and then suspended out over a traffic lane. Near exit 160 here on 95 North in Prince William County is held down by four vertical rods. Technicians Bernie Sevilla and Craig Friedline are using ultrasound to see more than four feet down into the concrete if there are any stress-related problems in the rods. I'm setting it now to a 100-inch uh, range, and you could see that uh, we have a spike at uh, 50, 51 inch. 51, 51 inches inch. down. It's down. It's reading the length of the bolt, the anchor bolt. That's that's the entire length of this bolt. I don't know if you could uh, possibly do this kind of inspection without that equipment. Uh, We're testing the bolt below concrete level. These tests make clear. Stress affects concrete and metal as much as our blood pressure and nerves. Everything you can see on the road is being stressed out, whether it be another human being, their vehicle, the signs, everything's stressed out. Nicholas Roper, VDOT structure and bridge engineer for Northern Virginia, explains how. Uh, An overload of the anchor bolts could be caused by very high winds, uh, an exceptional ice storm that puts additional uh, vertical loads on the sign that the anchor bolts eventually have to carry. 
Um, if one bolt was cracked and became overstressed, that would put additional stress on the other three bolts. To detect problems hidden from the naked eye, Roper's teams of technicians are employing the high tech on hundreds of signs like this one, and also on the hundreds of bridges across the interstate. They use ultrasonic devices, ground penetrating radar, and infrared thermographics. The way that works is you're looking for what we call delamination, which is a separation of concrete into different layers. Finding cracks and other problems deep inside structures lets VDOT stay ahead on maintenance that is so critical to commerce and commuting. Inspections are the catalyst for just all the repair, rehabilitation, preventive maintenance work that we do. The first thing you have to get is a is a good handle on the condition of the existing structure that, that, uh, that, that you're examining. Um, and everything else comes from that inspection. No matter how much maintenance any state DOT performs, there's no way to turn back the clock on aging infrastructure. At the D.C.-based think tank Bipartisan Policy Center, visiting scholar Emil Frankel, a former assistant transportation secretary under George W. Bush, says bridges on the interstate system are generally 40 to 50 years old. The lifetime of bridges is estimated to be 40 or 50 years. Structural deficiencies, uh, even more serious risks than that, are not unexpected. They're coming to the many of them are coming to the end of their lives. And uh, uh, but the difficulty is what we do about it. We can discover the problems, but remedying the problems is quite another issue. Until those investments are made, he says, both our infrastructure and the commuters who use it every day will continue to shoulder more and more stress. I'm Martin DeCaro. You can see photos of the ultrasound equipment you just heard about on our website. That's metroconnection.org. Time now for another break, but when we return, what do you do when you think your dancing days are over? When my career was finished, I had no job. I lived in New York City. I couldn't pay my rent. Like, I mean, these are major things. I felt like a failure. That and more in just a minute on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And even though it isn't exactly the heart of cold and flu season, this week we're testing the hypothesis that a bit of public radio a day keeps the doctor away and are checking out some of our favorite health and wellness stories from the past few months. And we'll kick off this part of the show by heading up to the studio of an artist whose own health and wellness, not too long ago, were hanging in the balance. So you, your class is downstairs and then your studio is up? Yeah. This is Jay Jordan Bruns. So you've got two floors. Yeah. Yep. That's why it's the best studio in Maryland. Jordan, as he's known, is the resident artist at Glen Echo Park in Maryland. He teaches classes in the park's famed Yellow Barn and creates and displays his paintings and drawings up in the old stone tower. I've been in the stone tower since 2000 and right, right after brain surgery, 2007. It's kind of hard to hear in the tower's echoey stairway, so in case you missed that, in 2007, Jordan underwent brain surgery. A million-dollar brain surgery, in fact, at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda. I was rare enough of an illness to uh, qualify for one of their studies. And once I was finally back to normal, it actually took about a year. When you say normal, what does that mean? Uh, not diseased. <laughs> um, healthy. Uh, thinking back to where I used to be once upon a time. As for what once upon a time means, Jordan's doctors suspect it was probably around high school. 
which the Ohio native attended in a suburb of Cleveland. And um, I was the first uh, student to go to art school from my high school. And then I was in Baltimore, so I have a kind of affinity with Maryland. But it was in Maryland, at the Maryland Institute College of Art, that Jordan first started noticing something was off. For starters, he was gaining weight. I was 50 pounds heavier than I am now. Lots of weight. Really bulbous face, and I have a buffalo hump on my back, my neck, but I had very skinny arms. And he knew this wasn't a case of the notorious freshman 15. You know, I was vegetarian diet and running five miles a day, yet I weighed over 200 pounds, so there was something not right. Then, when Jordan got into the MFA art program at Indiana University, he found he was really struggling with memory. And I wasn't remembering a lot of what my instructors were telling me. And focus. I had six bodies of work. I produced more than anyone else in my program, for sure, but they got frustrated with me, and they just wanted me to focus. And actually, I got put on probation. Finally, he decided enough was enough. He went to IU's health clinic, and after hearing Jordan's symptoms, the clinic's doctor said, look, um, this is kind of a long shot. But um, I'm going to test for Cushing's disease. And lo and behold, that's what I had. Cushing's disease is caused by a tumor on the pituitary gland right at the base of the brain. And that tumor overstimulates the production of the stress hormone cortisol. A normal person's between 1 and 10 on their cortisol level, whatever doctors measure cortisol with. And uh, mine was over 400. Cortisol controls your body's use of carbohydrates, fats, and protein. It helps reduce swelling and inflammation. It also affects your mental state. So too much cortisol and all those things get out of whack which is why the doctor thought to test Jordan for Cushing's disease. So she thought you might have it, you were tested, you you came out positive for it, and what was your reaction? Oh, it was relief. You know, I was very unhappy with the way I looked, and my memory was terrible, so when it finally got resolved, you know, I had some sort of depression issues just because I felt so terrible, but I thought this was going to be something I had to live with for the rest of my life. And, of course, it wasn't, thanks to the surgery Jordan eventually received at NIH, which, again, was a kind of experimental surgery since most cases of Cushing's disease... Apparently it's more prevalent in women and dogs and horses. ...don't occur in guys. The actual probability of me having it, I think we calculated it to two in a million men. As to why it took Jordan an entire year to recover after the surgery, you have to remember, basically, his body had been addicted to cortisol. My body was fiending for cortisol. Ever since the tumor appeared during his high school days, so his doctors... It was essentially being a heroin addict and then removing all your heroin. ...had to wean him off. So I was taking medication, and during that time period, my pituitary gland, which had been asleep for nine years because the tumor was taking over, was slowly starting to wake up again and do its job. And now that Jordan's pituitary is back in business and he feels normal, again, to borrow his word, I'm back to running. I'm back to producing artwork on a daily basis. He says he feels forever indebted to NIH for getting his life back on track. That's why he's created an annual summer fundraiser for the Children's Inn at NIH. Last month, a handful of Glen Echo artists painted in the bumper car pavilion as the Washington Conservatory of Music performed jazz. Jordan says next June's event will feature Latin music and a singer. And you said this is kind of your way of giving back? Yeah, I didn't have to pay for my surgery, so this is my way of of saying thank you. And they do a really wonderful job at the Children's Inn of making that environment friendly for kids. I I can see myself, if I was a younger kid, really appreciating that kind of opportunity to not be in a very stark hospital. (laughs) And of course, Jordan hopes he won't wind up in such a place either. Like, say, if the tumor comes back? I run the risk of losing the pituitary gland if it does come back. As of now, I'm off hormone replacements. I don't wake up and go through withdrawals of feeling sick and nauseous all the time. But, you know, there's always the chance that it could come back, but it's less now than ever. 
As for how Jordan Bruns's bout with Cushing's disease has affected his art, well, he's always been fascinated by the cycle of destruction and rebirth. And now he says that theme takes on a whole new meaning in his artworks, many of which depict sweeping, almost surreal stone buildings, often crumbling and falling down from the inside and out. You know, the destruction, I think I was doing it to myself during that time period. But also the rebirth is still there, so there's always kind of a, a glimmer of hope. And some people kind of walk in the studio saying, oh, it's very post-apocalyptic, it's very depressing. And I'm like, well, yeah, and that's part of what life is. If things die, things are reborn. And I think that cycle is true to me. You know, it feels like it came through experience in a way. For more on Jordan Bruns, Glen Echo Park, and the Children's Inn at NIH, visit our website, metroconnection.org. So you know that whole process of rebirth that Jordan Bruns was describing? Alicia Graf Mack knows a thing or two about that. As a youngster in Maryland, Mack would rush home from school, pop in a videotape of legendary choreographer Alvin Ailey's classic dances, and then she would mimic the steps. Now she performs those very same pieces with the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater. But as Mack told Jessica Gould earlier this year, the road to success has been full of twists and turns. The late choreographer Alvin Ailey once said his masterpiece, Revelations, was based on blood memories of growing up African-American in the Deep South. So as dancer Alicia Graf Mack arches her arms heavenward like a bird ready to take flight. She thinks about her ancestors who suffered through segregation and the relatives who struggle today. Sometimes I think about my grandmother who's 95, this beautiful woman. She's still living and she lost her husband a few years ago and they have been married for over 70 years. And what she says to God when she thinks about her husband or when she is upset. Then, sometimes, she thinks about her own story. We've all been through times in our lives where we feel like we weren't going to make it through. So while I'm glad that it touches other people, it's deeply personal for me. It's just an opportunity to talk to God and to thank him or her for the gifts that I received. Mac, who grew up in Columbia, Maryland, began dancing when she was still in diapers. I think I just was a born mover. And she danced everywhere she could. In the house. In the supermarket. Something about grocery store aisles were very appealing to me. I always danced down grocery store aisles and places where there was a lot of space. By elementary school, Mac knew Alvin Ailey's most famous pieces by heart. I had a VHS tape of revelations that I would watch with one of my friends. We would try to imitate what was going on on, on the video. Then, by 17, Mac was starring in concerts of her own as a principal with the Dance Theater of Harlem in New York City. For me, dance is such a part of me, just like when people get up and brush their teeth in the morning. I get up and I'm a dancer. That's what I do. Lithe and long with legs that look as if they could skim the sky when she extends them, Mac was an instant sensation. Soon, her image was plastered on subways and bus stops throughout the city. But after a few years, her joints, which had always bothered her, started acting up. From the time I was young, I, was, uh, I would have various joints that would swell. And so I just went through life just draining various joints whenever they got swollen. Doctors didn't know what to do. 
and Mac was forced to give up dancing. And we're sitting on the train, and I look up, and there's a picture of me above my head, and it was just painfully ironic, and I broke down in the subway car. She was just 21, and the life she knew was over. I trained to be a a dancer my whole life. I did not go to college. So when my career was finished, I had no job, no career option. I lived in New York City. I couldn't pay my rent. Like, I mean, these are major things. I didn't want to go home. I felt like a failure. So Mac turned in her toe shoes and began again. She went to college studying history at Columbia University and started preparing for a future in finance. Everything can be stripped away, but that just means that you build even stronger. Then, as Mac's body began feeling better, she decided to give dancing one more chance. And I thought, I'm just going to try it for a year. And a year turned into six amazing years. During her 20s, Mac danced with Dance Theater of Harlem, Complexion's Contemporary Ballet, and eventually, Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater, performing the same steps she'd practiced in her living room back in Maryland. I feel like to perform Revelations, it's a huge honor to know that 23 million people have seen Revelations in its lifetime. You have a responsibility to do it well. It seemed too good to last, and it was. After three years with Ailey, Max Joints began to bother her again. So she said her goodbyes one more time. I moved to St. Louis, Missouri, because my then-boyfriend, now-husband, was living there at the time. She studied nonprofit management in hopes of leading her own company one day, and she started teaching on the side. But dance kept calling her back. I would be teaching, and in between every class that I would teach at the university, I'd take a class. Now, with a new treatment for her ailment, which doctors think is a form of arthritis, Mac is back with ailment. It's beautiful, it's powerful, and it's touching, and there's nothing else like it in the world. And this time, she says she's determined to make the most of every minute, while she still can. When I was younger, I stressed about everything. I wanted to please everybody. I wanted to be perfect. And in doing that, I realized that I was denying myself some of the joy of being a dancer. Now it's just about sharing and enjoying the craft and and living in it. Call it a revelation. I'm Jessica Gould. You can learn more about the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater and see photographs of Alicia Graf Mack on our website, metroconnection.org. our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit Eckington in northeast D.C. and the historic downtown of Herndon, Virginia. My name's Lisa Merkel, and I live in the historic downtown of Herndon. The town of Herndon is four square miles, and we have a historic downtown. We have a town green and a beautiful library, that, uh, and the town green hosts festivals and concerts throughout the summer. We were a dairy farm town. Uh, The railroad was essential to our economy in the 1800s and early 1900s, and we know that Metrorail's arrival in 2016 will be the centerpiece of Herndon's economic future in the 21st century. 
We have a small main street with a great harvest bread and locally owned restaurants, and everybody knows the landmark of Jimmy's. Uh, Jimmy still buses tables at Jimmy's Old Town Tavern, and if you want to know what the, the heartbeat and the pulse of the town is, stop by Jimmy's and you'll, you'll see what Herndon is. People want to live in Herndon because you can have a little bit of everything. We've got the small town feel with the white picket fences. We're 10 minutes from Dulles Airport. We're a half hour from D.C. and a half hour from wine country. My name is Stephen Reinecke. I'm a member of the Eckington Civic Association, and I play a role of historian there. I've been in Eckington for over 10 years. Eckington is near the New York Avenue Metro Station on the Red Line. It's actually between North Capitol Street Northeast and the Metro tracks to the east. It's Rhode Island Avenue to the north and Florida Avenue Northeast to the south. Eckington's fortunes have risen and fallen due to transportation shifts. And I think that, I mean, as one of the first commuter suburbs of Washington in the late 1800s, uh, we were part of the soldier, Eckington Soldiers Home line. And then eventually, when that streetcar went out, uh, our neighborhoods kind of went down economically, and then with the new metro coming in, you could see a spike of development. You know, people have said it's kind of an, an oasis, an urban oasis, and in a way it is, because you go to other neighborhoods that are within the vicinity, get a lot more foot traffic, but here you could walk around and not see a lot of people. Sort of makes you feel like you're further out of the downtown. We heard from Steve Reinecke in Eckington and Lisa Merkel in Herndon. If you think your neighborhood should be part of Door to Door, send an email to metro at wamu.org. Or visit us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash metroconnection.org. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Sabri Benashore, Jessica Gould, Emily Friedman, and Martin DeCaro. Our acting news director is Memo Lyons. Our managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our interns are Jessica Officer and Rafaela Benin. Jonna McCone, Lauren Landau, Rafaela Benin, and Jessica Officer produce Door to Door. Thanks as always to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can see all the music we use on our website, metroconnection.org. Also on metroconnection.org, you can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. To listen to our most recent episodes, click the podcast link. Or just find us on iTunes. We hope you can join us next week when we're all about survival. We'll visit a Maryland drive-in that's among the last in the nation to survive. We'll find out how an old monastery in Clark County, Virginia, is finding 21st century ways to survive and thrive. And we'll hear about a new fund designed to come to the aid of theater artists in times of need. Life happens to actors like it does to everybody else. And I think it's good to have an agency around so that they can go and say, look, this crisis has come up. Can you help me? I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.